It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. Okay, so here's a question for you. If Jesus Christ gave a TED Talk, what would it be? Um, you know, TED Talks are like 18 minutes in length, yet they're loaded with insight and information as well as being engaging, original, and globally appealing. What would Jesus say? Well, Dr. Robert Jeffress is a Fox contributor and a senior pastor of First Baptist Dallas, believes that Jesus' TED Talk would be his miraculous and mind-bending Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. So often quoted for its words of blessings and, and the, like the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There is, however, so much more to this profound sermon, and Dr. Jeffers is helping people understand its depths and its breadth through his new book, 18 Minutes with Jesus, Straight Talk from the Savior about things, the things that matter most. Welcome, Dr. Jeffers. Great to be back with you, Lauren. It's so wonderful to talk to you because I, you'd never think about Jesus giving a TED Talk. How did that come about? <laughs> Well, I have a friend who's enthralled with TED Talks, and the friend said to me, you've got to hear one of these. They're just captivating. And so I did a little bit of study about TED Talks and discovered why they're so appealing. And I had the thought one day, what if Jesus came back to earth to give that TED Talk? What would he say? And as you said, I think it would be the Sermon on the Mount. Most people don't know you can read the Sermon on the Mount in 18 minutes. <laughs> uh, but interestingly, even though it's brief, and I know so many people wish we preachers could be that brief, but he, he was brief, and yet he touched on the things we care about most in that sermon. He talked about your money. He talked about your sex life. He talked about uh, anxiety, how to deal with your enemies, your eternal destiny, and uh, he really turned people's thinking upside down in this brief TED Talk. Now, so what is the setting of the Sermon on the Mount? Um, because there's a similar sermon in the Gospel of, of Luke. Right. They call it the Sermon on the Plain. <laughs> I think it's not the mind, it's not the plane, but it's it's similar, but it's different. Yeah. Um, they're like, you know, instead of blessed are the poor in spirit, the Gospel of Luke says blessed are the poor. Yeah, and, and let me just say something about that, not to chase a rabbit here, but people say, oh, there's contradictions in the Bible because of different accounts. It's very well uh, that Jesus did what I do. Sometimes I give the same basic message, but I change it when I go to a different audience. Right. It could be that. It could be it's a summary of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, in the Greek language, there are no quotation marks. We uh, get the idea things are under quotation marks or direct quotations. This may be a summary, but I think it's probably two different but similar messages. Yeah, uh, two different audiences, too. Right. Because you're talking about Matthew, probably he was speaking to a more affluent crowd. You know, if you, if you blessed are the poor in spirit, it means you, too, have poverty. Yeah. There's a level of poverty that you have that you haven't recognized yet. I, I, I like the way Dallas Willard translates that. He said, blessed are those who realize they're spiritual zeros. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's a message in there for us. You know, there's nothing blessed about being poor. Some poor people are blessed, some are cursed. It's those who are poor in spirit who realize their need for God. Yeah, yeah. So 
Set the setting for us, the yeah. Sermon on the Mount. What's happening now? Well, it's early in Jesus' ministry, and he has a throng of people following after him with different levels of interest. Some yeah. are already uh, devoted disciples. Some are curious. Some are enemies. And uh, some are skeptics like the religious leaders. So he was speaking to a mixed audience. But it was one, this message, one that had universal appeal to everybody. And, of course, the religious leaders. And it's interesting, Lauren, his harshest condemnation when he was here on earth, was not toward adulterers or uh, drunkards. It was toward the religious hypocrites. And he hit them especially hard in this message. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, you know, the intended audience. So he's got a throng of people. But are there specific people that he wants to really you know, kind of get at, I mean, the, the disciples or the apostles I think or just he, everyday folks? I think he is going after two main groups. I think he's uh, going after the religious hypocrites to show how far off the mark they are. They had a checklist of external appearances that as long as they met those, they thought they were okay with God. And he ripped off the mask of those religious hypocrites. But I think he was also speaking to those who were genuinely longing for true satisfaction in life. You know, you talked about the Beatitudes, they are the preamble to this sermon. Mm -hmm. And like any good speaker, Jesus uh, promised the payoff if people would listen to this message and apply it. And the theme of this message is very simple. Those who model the actions, attitudes, and affections of Jesus Christ can enjoy unshakable joy in this life and unending happiness in the next life. Eight times he said, blessed, blessed, blessed. That Greek word makarios could be translated happy, but our word happy doesn't capture the real meaning. It's more like joyful. Joy is not some superficially giddiness. It is that deep assurance that God is in control. Right now, there are a lot of believers in Florida who don't feel happy. No. They're not giddy. No. But there's a joy inside that God's in control of this. God's got this. And those who live by the Sermon on the Mount can experience joy in this life right now, that satisfaction that most people don't know. You know, one of the things that um, I'd heard about the Sermon on the Mount, that it is here that Jesus is really fleshing out the Ten Commandments. This is where he takes the external force of God's law and then make it more of a heart desire kind of law. I mean, I mean, I mean, it, this was really radical stuff. It was. I mean, you know, uh, the religious leaders thought, you know, uh, as long as we don't overtly commit adultery with somebody, we're pure in God's eyes. And and Jesus uh, didn't negate thou shall not commit adultery, but he expanded the meaning of that. He said to look on somebody with lust is the same as committing adultery in your heart. He was drawing a higher standard that we're to live by, but it's a standard that leads to our happiness, our joy. I mean, Lauren, uh, you know, God's the one who created sex. He's the one who <laughs> Knows, and, and that blows my mind sometimes to think of God in heaven with a sketch pad saying, wouldn't this be interesting if this person did this person with that? I mean, he came up with the whole idea of sex. He knows how it operates best. And it's meant between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. That was God's design. He wasn't trying to restrict our happiness. He was trying to enhance it. And so Jesus gives that deeper uh, standard, that higher standard that leads to true satisfaction. In you, life. Know, you know, President Jim. Jimmy Carter got into trouble when he, <laughs> he 
remember that when he talked about when I look at a woman, oh. I've committed lust. He was just the the, the 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 subject of late night fodder for for a long time. Yeah, and admitted he did a Playboy interview or something. You know, he did that interview in Playboy, but uh, that's right. And the world may laugh at this standard, the idea of one man and one woman in a lifetime relationship. That just seems so outdated. But again, Jesus gave this not for his benefit. He gave it for our benefit. Yeah, you know, but people do like the blessed stuff, like you, like you said. And, you know, it's a talk about, you know, the sort of, yeah, it feels good. But, you know, the idea that when he's talking about, you know, adultery and divorce and murder, mm-hmm. um, those are all the kind of, you know, actions that take place first in our hearts. That's right. But is it something that you can apply today? I mean, I think yeah. that's what's really the issue. Is the Sermon on the Mount sort of antiquated? Let's keep it back into, you know, 2,000 years ago, but not not today. Well, I think that's the tendency. And I admitted to you off the air that uh, I haven't preached on the Sermon on the Mount in 40 years. This is the first time I ever read it because, frankly, I hate to confess this, I thought it was boring. <laughs> uh, I thought this doesn't apply today. In fact, I went to a seminary that actually taught that the Sermon on the Mount has no application for today. It's the constitution for the millennial kingdom or for heaven. It's how we're going to live there. And I accepted that until I started reading this. I said, okay, you know, if somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. Well, are we going to be slapping each other in heaven? Who's going to be slapping? And he said, love your enemies. If evil's been vanquished forever in heaven, why would I have any enemies? The Sermon on the Mount is not for the hereafter. It's for the here and now. It's things we can live by today and experience a different quality of life. You know, for example, uh, you know, you've heard it said, Jesus said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's how people live. That was the lex talionis, the law of retribution. But as Gandhi said, if you follow that law long enough, eventually everybody becomes blind and toothless. (laughs) I mean, you've got to stop uh, escalating the evil. There's a better way to live, and that is to love your enemies. This is um, one of the reasons why I think people do have a problem with the Sermon on the Mount. They don't realize it, but they do. I mean, they can read it and think, okay, that applies to over there. Yes. But it doesn't apply to me. Yeah. Um, some of the some of the most difficult things, what did you learn when you when you started doing this book on the Sermon on the Mount. Well, my major takeaway of it was, yes, this is a regulation for how to live in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is not just future. I think there is a literal kingdom of God that's still coming. But Jesus taught over and over again, the kingdom has not been uh, canceled, but it's been postponed. The literal, visible kingdom of God. Instead, the kingdom of God resides in every believer's heart. And to the extent, Lauren, that we submit to the king, we can experience the benefits of living in the kingdom of God. You know, a king's kingdom is wherever what the king wants done gets done. Well, uh, the king's will is not being done on the earth right now. Uh, The fact is, in the whole universe, there's only one corner of rebellion left in the entire universe, (laughs) and it's that little uh, mud pile called the planet Earth that's spinning. So that rebellion is still going, but God's going to put an end to that. But until then, I can submit to the kingdom right now. And in my book, 18 Minutes with Jesus, I talk about practical ways that we can follow the Sermon on the Mount and experience the benefits Jesus promises. What are practical ways? Because I want to read some of the things that why people give, I mean, why people really understand it 
being very, very difficult. Let's just let's just you know the eye for an eye issue. Um, flesh that one out in terms of you know he's not talking about you know give an eye for an eye. It's more like let the punishment fit the crime kind That's of thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But Jesus had a higher standard. He said, uh, not only are we not to continue escalating evil, we're to return good for evil. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Uh, now, um, uh, he was not talking about not engaging in self-defense. Nobody ever died from a slap on the cheek. That was a way of insulting people in Jesus' day, to slap them on the cheek. He said, don't return evil for evil. I want to tell you kind of a funny story, and it just came out publicly. There is this book about the Trump presidency called The Divider by Peter Baker from the New York Times, Mm -hmm. and he tells this story. I've never told it before, but he told it because I was involved in it. One night, we had a dinner at the White House, about 10 of us, right after Trump had been acquitted the second time, Mm -hmm. and he called it his unimpeachment dinner. (laughs) And so we were sitting there, and there were senators and uh, congressmen from both parties there. And there are about two religious leaders there. And so one of the senators said, now, Mr. President, you know, the Bible says, love your enemy. And so he turned to me, he said, Pastor, what do you think about that? Love your enemy? I thought, now, what am I going to say here? And I said, Mr. President, Jesus wasn't saying that you have to hang out with your enemies or that you have to be best friends with them. But to love your enemies means wanting God's best for them. It means praying for them. You can't pray for somebody and hate them at the same time. And so I think the president uh, illustrated why a lot of people have difficulty with that idea. Love your enemies. They've got a wrong idea about what it means to love somebody. And that's very interesting because people will actually point to, you know, um, you know, politicians as people who cannot forgive. But yet we see it all the time on the talk shows, you know, on the late nights. It's oh, like there's, yeah. there's no sense of forgiveness. And, you know, I was just talking to someone who's, you know, basically a Democrat and I shouldn't see a day. I should say just a liberal person. They're not, they could be an independent. I don't know. (laughs) Whoever they vote for, I don't care. But the idea was that they had this unforgiveness in their heart for another person. And I said, but can't you forgive that person? Can't you? It doesn't mean that you, like you said, are going to be best friends. But, you know, the animosity you have for this person is not going to affect them. It's going to affect you. That's right. I think it's what Lily Tomlin used to say, you know, uh, drinking rat poison uh, doesn't hurt the rat. <laughs> it hurts you. And and by the way, forgiveness was a key theme in this Sermon on the Mountain. Jesus, in Matthew 6, right in the heart of this sermon, Jesus said, if you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others, neither will my heavenly Father forgive you. He wasn't saying forgiveness um, uh, is a condition for salvation, but what he is saying is, if you find it impossible, to forgive somebody else, it's because you've never received God's forgiveness in your life. Wow. Um, we're going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast, talking with Dr. Jeffress, Dr. Robert Jeffress, and his book, 18 Minutes with Jesus. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. And we're back with Dr. Robert Jeffress talking about his book, 18 Minutes with Jesus. This is really about, you know, if Jesus were giving a TED Talk, <laughs> what he would say. Um, and, you know, what's great about saying 
about the Sermon on the Mount, telling people, hey, you know what? Maybe you could pick up the Sermon on the Mount and actually read what it says because it only takes 18 minutes to read. Well, that's right. And again, it just turns your expectations upside down. People have this stereotyped image of Jesus, Lauren. They think of him as this little wimpy rabbi who walked around the hillside munching bird seed and saying nice things <laughs> to people. And they say, well, why do I need to read that? You know, a sermonette for Christianettes. You know, I'm not interested in that. But that wasn't Jesus. I mean, he he had radical thoughts here. Uh, I, I, I say the Sermon on the Mount is about radical righteousness, but it's a way of li- living that will allow you to experience a satisfaction that most people today aren't experiencing. One of the things I talk about in chapter two that I think your audience would find interesting is how Jesus would assess the political landscape right yeah. now. And what would he say about Christians' involvement in politics I think his answer is going to surprise a lot of people. Really? Okay, well, you got to get the book. I, I, won't, I won't divulge it right now. There is this sense, though, in the Sermon on the Mount that he brings these opposites together. The idea of truth and love, right? Yes. Giving, you know, loving your enemies, uh, giving to the needy. Judge not that you would be judged. Yes. Um, there are also, you know, the treasures in heaven, um, you know, it, th- you know, it's like, and do not worry. I mean, these are ideas that what it's showing us is that we live in relationships and we are not these isolated, no man, you know, no, really, no man is an island. Yes. Um, we are living in relationships and our walk with God is in relationship to other people. It's never just, you know, it's just me and God and I don't have to do anything because it's just me and God. But your your, your faith really is tested in relationships. Well, it is. And and the most common image for the church in the Bible is the body of Christ. Paul said, we're Christ's body and individually members of it. If one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And so this American Western idea of rugged individualism, really that plays against what Jesus and the New Testament teach about, no, we're, it's not about me, it's about us. What is it, What was the most difficult part to you for from the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, just you're you're a preacher. I mean, you know, we we're all sinners saved by grace. We know that. But so what do you when you try to ingest the Sermon on the Mount, what do you think is the most difficult part for you? I think it is being heavenly focused instead of earthly focused. And, uh, you know, Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And, uh, you know, Jesus had a lot to say about uh, your attitude toward money. He said that wealth and worry go hand in hand. Uh, everybody worries about money. Wealthy, yeah, well, look at the market. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wealthy, it's like, oh, my God. Wealthy people are afraid that they're going to lose it, and poor people are afraid they'll never have it. But Jesus said you can't worry yourself to, you can't worry yourself to wealth. He said, look at the birds of the air. They don't sit up at nights trying to balance their checkbook and wonder what's going to happen next. They trust in God and God provides for them. Will he not do so much more for you? Now, uh, I think there's just great wisdom in making sure you've got the right focus, that it's eternal. And I think we all struggle with that. You know, one of the things that I think is really mind-bending and, and mind-bending in a way that's not 
obvious is the narrow and the wide gates. Enter yes. through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. That's a little mind-bending in terms of like, okay, broad means like the bad stuff and, you know, the narrow is the good stuff, and but it's not quite like that. But it answers the question so many people ask me as a pastor. Pastor, if Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, as you say the Bible teaches, what about the billions of people in the world who don't believe that? How could so many people be wrong? And I say, well, that's exactly what Jesus said. He said the population of hell is going to be much greater than the population of heaven. In fact, heaven will be very thinly populated. Few are those who find that narrow way that leads to salvation. The good news is, Lauren, anybody can find it. We've got people in our church from every religious background in the world. Anybody can find that narrow way. That way is Jesus. And the idea, though, too, is that... Um, it's not an invitation that is narrowly given. It is an invitation that is broadly given. Will. Right? Whosoever will. Right? And this is, I think, and, the, and Christians get a lot of criticism because they had, um, you know, the missionaries, the pilgrims, because they were trying to fulfill the Great Commission to go and preach the gospel to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit because of this passage. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, Christianity transcends any nation. It transcends any culture. It started in the Middle East. It's a Middle Eastern religion, but it then spread through uh, Europe and to Great Britain and America became the center of the gospel. And now there's many polls suggesting that is fading, and that the new center for the gospel could be uh, uh, China. It could be uh, Africa. Uh, Christianity is not bound by any nation or by any culture. This is, though, interesting, though, because and I think this applies to today's pluralistic kind of, um, you know, I'm spiritual, not religious kind of culture mm-hmm. here, is, is the true and false disciples. Yes. You know, who is the true disciple? And one of the criticisms, again, of Christianity, because I know all the criticisms, not (laughs) not all, I'm sure there are plenty I've not heard, is that it's very, the idea is that um, it's very, again, this idea of narrowness, that, you know, you have to accept Jesus in order to be a Christian, um, and why can't all good people just go to heaven? Um, And this idea of true and false disciples Let's just narrow it into the realm of Christianity, which mm-hmm. has what what over like forty thousand different denominations. Yes. It's because some people feel that this is not the right Christianity, that yeah. this is the right Christianity. And so it's like, you know, like they said, you know, we just get mad and split. Yeah. You know, we, <laughs> we don't we don't do a study. It's just like I'm mad, so I'm gonna split. But how do you do tell the true and false disciples, who is really following Jesus? What church is following Jesus? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, the guide is the Bible. It's not any denomination. It's about what the Bible says, and everybody has to make that judgment for themselves. But I think uh, Jesus really closed the Sermon on the Mount by telling how you can tell the difference between a true and a false disciple. It's what the foundation of his life is. Remember, he told the story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everybody who hears my word and applies it. Mm is like a man who built his house upon a rock. The winds came, but the house did not fall because it was built upon the rock. The other disciple, the other person built a house. It was on sand. It looked just like his neighbor's house. 
except when the winds and the storm came, it fell, it collapsed because it didn't have the right foundation. Here's the point. The way to judge whether your life is living in harmony with God or somebody else's life is, is whether or not they are not just hearing the word of Christ, but applying it, obeying it. You know, how can parents teach their children that the Sermon on the Mount is a thing that really does apply to their lives because the natural way is not to love your enemies. Yeah. The, the natural way is not to, is to, you know, the natural way is to judge others mm-hmm. because, of course, you know, we judge others. Um, it, this is, there's a natural sense, but how do parents actually bring up a child understanding the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think, first of all, they have to understand it themselves. And if I didn't understand it with, you know, three degrees and being in preaching for 40 (laughs) years, I mean, I'm not sure everybody's going to understand it immediately because we've been taught so wrongly, not just by religious teachers, but by the culture. So I think we've got to gain a proper understanding. And then I think we teach our children earlier. I would encourage going through the eight Beatitudes. What do those actually mean? You know, Jesus is saying there's going to be short-term pain in your life. In this world, you have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. And this is going to sound self-serving, uh, but I, <laughs> we've prepared a study guide for this book, 18 Minutes with Jesus. And so I'd encourage mm-hmm. people to get the study guide and use it to go through with your family or your small group Bible study. And it's a way of delving into this sermon in a more uh, studious way. I think you should do a shout out to Britney Spears right now because she's, she, she, there's a story about her. She said, I no longer believe in God because of all the stuff that's happened to her with her parents and, yeah. and all of that. And she's not alone. I mean, there are a lot of yeah. young. I mean, I remember uh, talking, uh, doing a story, uh, or mentioning Amber Heard, her faith, because she no longer she stopped believing in God after after her friend in high school was killed in a car accident. Speak about this yeah. eighteen minutes with Jesus. Thinking it's like, how do you apply real life situations to this to the, to the idea that you know God's still in charge? Yeah, yeah. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think a lot of reason. one of the reasons people get disillusioned with Christianity is they bought into the wrong promises. They've listened to the prosperity preachers uh, who've told them, now, if you just, you know, do this, send your money in, you're going to have a lifetime of uninterrupted happiness. That's not what Jesus said. Again, he said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good yeah. courage, for I've overcome the world. I, I use this illustration in the book. I mean, just imagine you were having difficulty providing for your family. Day to day, you were wondering where your um, uh, bread was going to come from. But at the same time, you found out that your uncle had put you in his will for a $10 million inheritance. <laughs> And the better news is your uncle was 99 years old. I mean, <clears throat> would that affect your outlook? I mean, in the short term, it doesn't put bread on the table, but you know long term you're going to be okay. I think that's what Jesus is promising. He said in the short term, there's going to be problems, but don't get dismayed. That's living in a fallen world. One day I'm coming back to redeem the world. Tell us about how they can get the book and the workbook and everything else about yeah. you know finding more about this. Because the Sermon on the Mount, even though it's 18 minutes, uh, you, know, you can read it in 18 minutes, and the book, obviously, you can't read in 18 minutes, but <laughs> there is 
if it applies to every aspect of your life, it means there's a whole lot more time we have to spend with it. That's right. Well, I'm, I'm happy to say our good friends at Hobby Lobby have selected this book. They have it in all their stores. It's on Amazon, all e-tailers, all Christian books. Again, it's 18 Minutes with Jesus. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Robert Jeffers, the author, 18 Minutes with Jesus, also Fox contributor. I love seeing you on the air when, you know, they, there's a there's a wonderful uh, faith story to talk about. And I'm just I'll, following you, Lauren. <laughs> And also um, the uh, senior pastor of First Baptist Dallas, which is an amazing church down in Dallas, Texas. If you're ever there in Dallas, please go down and visit uh, First Baptist Dallas. It's really an amazing church. Well, thank you. We love having you come and visit us, too. It's my pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Have a blessed day. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer Podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.